Till I'm Tiptoed you. Dot com. The podcast about pop culture, black history, and spirituality. Yeah. It's about to be a great vibe. Dr. Tip. Gonna take it away. Till I'm Tiptoed you. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Em Tip Told You. I appreciate you listening today. Um, I have a couple of things I want us to discuss. So, um, I was supp- I usually record these on Saturdays, but for some reason I just couldn't get it together yesterday to record. And part of it may be because um, I needed to, to talk about Baba Dick Gregory who made his transition last night after I would have recorded. And if I had recorded yesterday at my normal time, I wouldn't have been able to do that today. So I want to dedicate today's um, episode to Dick Gregory Ibaebaetunu, um, who made his transition last night in D.C. Um, if, if you know anything about his life, then you know he was a fierce lover of black people. He demanded the best of us. Um, for ourselves, you know, for no other purpose but to be our best selves. And he told his truth in the way that only he could tell it. He wasn't ashamed of his truth. And um, as I was searching for a theme for today's episode, um, thinking about him gave it to me, and that is the power of narrative, the power of the story. Uh, Last week when I was um, talking to you guys about Charlottesville, I talked about um, needing to develop our own counter-hegemony, and I think storytelling is the best way to do that. In critical race theory, they call it counter-narrative, right? But the whole uh, idea is that through our own stories, through our own testimonies, uh, Latina um, scholars call it testimonial, through these things, by bearing witness to our truth, we can actually change the world. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about Um, the power of storytelling and narrative. I want to talk a little bit about Jay-Z's 444. I want to go back to him and about authenticity. So let's just jump right in, right? So storytelling, we come from a people who love stories like that. We we just are a storied people. I, uh, I can remember going to the beauty shop on Saturdays. Uh, listening to my uncles under shade trees and it was always somebody in the family in the community that was like the best storyteller like you sat riveted on their word every word and in every story there was embedded some kind of moral tale Uh, for those of us who practice lukumi we know odu ifa through the pataki are full of of stories that serve as moral tales that's kind of who we are Uh, Henry Louis Gates and the Signifying Monkey talks about that, that, that we are just a storied people. Um, we are rhythmic people. We push narratives. But I think sometimes we push narratives for entertainment purposes. It's every once in a while for pedagogical or teaching purposes. Um, but I think we need to do it a little bit more. And again, critical race theory through its idea of counter-narrative, uh, preaches about how powerful stories are in terms of helping people understand that you're not in this alone, uh, helping 
unpack complex, complicated ideas through story. You know, it's just a beautiful thing. It is, there's an African proverb that says, it's actually an Akan proverb, that says, um, the wise child is taught in proverbs. So, you know, it's through story that, that the best teaching happens. And now, uh, modern educational theory is starting to unpack that idea as well, rather than lecture format, even seminar format. It is the story that people um, will hold to the most that will that they'll be able to retain and unpack ideas. It also teaches critical thinking, right? So if I'm teaching you a concept through a story, I'm not telling you exactly what to think. Um, you're developing your metacognitive skills by being able to pull out the principles from the story itself. So it's very important that we, we maintain that part of ourselves as people of color is the storytelling and the deliberate use of language. Uh, I talked to you a little bit last week about counter-hegemony. So being careful with the language, how we speak about ourselves, how we intend to create our future, all of that we have to be very conscious of with the storytelling. Uh, Dick Gregory was a phenomenal comedian, and a lot of his comedy was through the story, right? And he, he was an author. He gave us, you know, autobiographies and things like that, a nigger being the, my favorite one. Um... But he, he was a storyteller, and, and through the story, we get, th we get principles that we need to take into tomorrow. So I, I just want, wanted to talk about the, the importance of pushing narrative, that we control our own stories. We write our own stories, and how we speak about ourselves often gives clues to other people on how to treat us. I remember I was being called into um, my provost's office, uh, for some offense I, you know, had committed. And um, I'm big on CYA, so I made sure I had my, my documents in place by the time I got called into his office. And when I got to his office and was accused of this thing, I was able to pull out emails that proved that I had not done this thing, right? And I said to him, you know, Dr. Mm -mm, um, I'm excellent in all that I do. And you should have never believed that about me because you should know that if I'm involved, I'm going to do it the best way I can do it. I'm going to document it the way I'm supposed to document it. And it's going to be done excellently. And that is a narrative I tell a lot of people when I'm dealing with them. Hey, don't come to me with no half standard shit. Uh, we deal with excellence over here. So that kind of, uh, even on days when I'm feeling raggedy, I, I try to remember to be consciously verbal that I'm not raggedy, right? That I am excellent. I tell people all the time I'm excellent. What I got ain't free and it don't come cheap. It's worth something. Um, sometimes I don't always believe that. I'm working on believing that myself. But even if I don't always believe it, I'm always going to say it because I need other people to believe it, right? So I push the, the, the narrative about myself in that way. People will say, yeah, she's strong, she's assertive, sometimes aggressive, um, and that's okay as long as they know in everything I'm doing, though, my intention is to be excellent. Like, that's a word I use about myself often. So I want us to key in on how we describe ourselves to others. What words do we use? What narratives are we pushing about ourselves? And that extends to the community. I represent, uh, for example, I represent my family. And when I'm out, uh, people see me as an extension of them. How am I representing them? That's why in our family, uh, 
my mother's side of the family, we, we brag on each other a lot because I think we understand that principle that what, what one accomplishes, the all has accomplished. And so when I'm out in the streets, I'm representing them. I had a, a, a colleague uh, in Miami when I was working on my master's degree at Florida International University. She was doing a study on Haitian students. Now, it, this narrative hasn't been pushed the way it should be pushed, but in Miami, Haitian students, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was there in 2005 through eight, Haitian students' test scores outranked everyone else, including Asian students, who are typically the highest in the achievement gap. Um, so Haitian students were outperforming everybody else. And while she was investigating what it was that they brought to the table that made them excel, one thing started to come out of her interviews was that all of them felt responsible for representing the community. So I don't need to get this A just because I want an A because I might need to get into college later. No, I need to get this A because I need to prove to people that Haitian people are smart. Like So that, that sense of responsibility to the collective really drove um, who and what they are. And the narrative that the families were telling them supported that. So yes, you represent me when you leave this house. Don't shame this family. Don't shame this community. Um, that's the kind, that, that's how we can use narrative to achieve a reality that other people will tell us is uh, that we can't achieve. Right here, these black children, some first, second generation immigrants, outperforming everybody else English as their second language in some cases and it's because the narrative says I'm supposed to do this and so when we're talking to each other and to our students I think we have to use language that pushes them that demands excellence of them because they represent the whole right I need you to be fly because I'm not all the way fly if you ain't fly I tell my students I train warriors for the classroom if you come out of pose class, then you know you are a warrior trained well for critical education of minority students. Marginalized. I, let's move from minority to marginalized students. Right? I create advocates for marginalized students of mine. That's what I do. And so I use that language with my own students because I want them to know that I expect something of them. I push that narrative that you're going into the public school system as a warrior. Not just an employee. Like you have a job, a destiny to fulfill. This is a sacred responsibility and duty. I believe that with all my heart, but I got to make sure the language supports it so that my students get some of that. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. Um, and speaking of that kind of pushing the narrative, I think we have to, to have standards. Right? And so I, I told you about how I, I tell people all the time that I'm excellent. I demand excellence. You don't get hero cookies for being average, baby, for doing what humans are supposed to do. There was a woman, uh, this actually happened yesterday on my social media feed. Uh, there was a white woman who I felt was exerting privilege in a, in a comment thread. And when I pushed her on the privilege piece, she said, oh, I don't have white privilege. I have, I have um, my son's. I'm trying to think how she said it, because when I called them black, she said, oh, oh, no, 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 they're biracial, baby. She, so she posted two pictures of these boys, right, with these cornrows and, and okay, wide noses and darker than, than me. <laughs> and I'm telling her, baby, 
if they get pulled over at the traffic light, when they apply for a loan at a bank, when they show up to an interview, if they had been in Charlottesville or Boston, they are black. So they are black. And, um, you know, someone was saying you got to give her credit, though, because she 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 raises them well. They know that they are, you know, they know their history. They know their culture, whatever, whatever. And my whole thing is that's what she's supposed to do. If you have children, you're supposed to raise them to be happy, healthy, whole. She doesn't get a hero cookie for that, for being human. I'm supposed to lower my standards to the point where because she does what a mother is supposed to do, she gets accolades. No, my standards are a little bit higher than that. And I don't have a problem telling people that my standards are higher than that. Because again, it pushes the narrative that we all should be demanding excellence of one another. Mediocrity has no place in this life for us. Right? Our students don't get, those of us who are Generation Xers and older, then most of us who are people of color have heard the saying, you got to be twice as good to get half as much. Now, unfortunately, our students, our babies don't hear that as much anymore. Like many of my students, I say that to them, they look lost. They've never heard it. Well, we got to start pushing that narrative again because that's the reality. Like we fell somewhere in, in the 80s, 90s, we fell into this we are the world mentality where we didn't want to talk explicitly about race. Well, look where that has gotten us. Because, see, ignoring issues of race and culture does not make them go away. Because difference doesn't mean deficit. That's the part that I think people need to be unpacking. Difference doesn't mean deficit. But let me get back to the excellence piece. We have to set standards for one another. I'm not going to allow you not to be great because your existence bears on my own, especially if you're a black woman. Because how they see black people if they see you and you're a black woman, then whether it's right or wrong, all those characteristics get laid on all of us. So if I'm consistently late to work, it doesn't become evidence of Tiffany being uh, lacking punctuality. No, it becomes evidence that all black people uh, are, are late. Right? Whether or not that should be the case. Right? In an ideal world, I should be judged on, based upon my own merits. So that's why I get angry when people say, I'm not a black actor, I'm an actor. Right, you can say that. And in an and a ideal world, and in a utopia, it may be that. But right now where we live now, baby, when we live right now, it's not that. Any mistake you make bears upon the whole. And so when I'm saying... We have to have standards. We have to have standards of excellence because that's the way we're going to be perceived. And so we, our language has to bear that out. We have to push each other on these things. Now, speaking of storytelling, y'all know how I feel about 444, right? Jay-Z, uh, if you don't, make sure you turn into that very second episode of Tell Tip Told You when 444 came out and I reviewed it. Um, go back to that. But I love Jay-Z and I love uh, the album. And what I'm lo loving now are, are the visuals that are coming out uh, from the album. And so if you have not seen his video for Moonlight, I want you to see it. Oh my gosh, I watched it for the first time this week. And just, it put me in a place. It really put me in a really reflective place. Um, and it's tied to this idea of narrative a little bit but mostly to another idea of authenticity. 
So if you haven't seen it yet, Moonlight is the, the visual is um, like a play on the sitcom Friends, which I never watched. I'm proud to say I never watched Friends. Like, I don't know the characters. Uh, I know the logo because, you know, just flipping through channels. But I am proud to say I've never watched that. Because um, I try to live my politics, but that's a whole other story. Let me not say that because I do watch Ratchet TV. I just can't watch uh, TV in urban areas where there are no black people. Anyway, that's a side note. I'm digressing. So it's this it's this play on a black version of Friends. And even in the video, there's a part where um, the sitcom pauses and one of the actors comes out and he's talking to a comedian and he's saying, you know, what do you think? And they both agree that it's corny as hell. Uh, why are you doing it this way? And the guy says, I'm doing it this way because this is what they asked me to do. Like they asked me to just do it this way. We know it's not authentic. You and I know it's not real, but this is what they wanted to see. So I'm doing it. And you see that something in his spirit is just unsettled by this, um, you know, doing just what you got to do. And in the song, there's a line by Jay-Z that says, even if we win, we going to lose. Right? Even if we win, we going to lose. So even if I'm doing exactly what this producer wants me to do, even if I'm getting paid at the end of the day, I'm keeping my job, in the end, we going to lose. Right? Because the story then is not authentic. That there's a power in, in telling authentic stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, I love Jay-Z for pushing that that piece that that troubles why we do what we do sometimes. So in my own life, uh, let me be completely transparent. In my own life, I'm at a at a crossroads, literally and figuratively. I'm at a cross, I live at the, the crossroads. Anyway, I'm at a crossroads and um, there are some professional decisions I need to make. And part of why Moonlight touched me the way it did yesterday is I want my decision to be based upon my authentic self. Like, I want to live authentically. I don't want to perform black scholarship in a way that other people want me to perform it. I want to perform it in the way that I understand it. Like, as a commitment to the people, as a commitment to my students, as a commitment to the cause of liberation of all oppressed people. Like, that's to me what black scholarship is. I need to find a space where I can be authentic in that. But at the same time, finding a space where I can be, uh, in, excuse me, be completely authentic in that is going to be more difficult than finding a space where I, I can just do teacher ed. Like, if I was just pure teacher ed and I had no commitments to anything else, I probably could find a job and find one that paid a lot more than I make now, right? But there's something else driving me. Um, and it's not just me. I don't want this to seem like I'm, I'm bragging on myself or think that I'm better than the average person. There are a lot of people who make professional decisions based upon a need to be authentic. Like, I can't do that nine to five thing because that's just not what I'm built for. I can't wear a suit to work because that's just not what I'm built for. You know, there are a lot of us who, who understand that in order for me to be my best self, I have to be my authentic self. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a time and space to code switch, right? That's a talent and an ability and a skill that I think all marginalized populations need to acquire. You've got to be able to sit at their table and play their game periodically. That that so I don't want to I don't want to ever downplay because there is a spook that sat by the door, right? There is somebody in there playing the game that way. But for many of us, we have to be our authentic selves. Like that, remember I said a systematic response to oppression. That everybody can't be the spook who sat by the door, though. Everybody can't be the person um, sitting at the conference table not rocking the boat. Everybody can't be that. Somebody has to be the rebel rouser. So let's go back to this counter-hegemony piece. So if your social media timelines are like mine, I curate my social media timelines very well. So I don't see any of my immediate friends doing this. But you know how you can sometimes see your friends and friends commenting on other stuff that's not really your friend. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I notice that there is this need for, for certain kinds of white people to use King, to use King's rhetoric to try to police black emotion and black political thought, right? So they'll say things like, well, King didn't want us to see race and King didn't want this and King wouldn't have done that. And they have turned King into a teddy bear and King was a radical, especially by the time he was killed. He was a radical and we forget that, right? So whenever they start with that, we are the world, Martin Luther King Jr., that they've created, which is a figment of the white imagination. That's not who King was. King was a radical. He was very deliberate in what he did. And he was a strategist. We can't forget that. He was a strategist. He was a smart man. He wasn't no dumb dummy. Right? And so when they start trying to push that narrative of King, then we have to meet it with our own counter-hegemony, right? So rather than having King presented as some kind of teddy bear who was lukewarm at best in his approach to civil rights, then I always direct them to a letter from a Birmingham jail. Here's the reality. King understood well the uh, tenet of critical race theory called interest convergence. Now, for those of us who may not study critical race theory, Interest convergence is the idea that if you want to achieve something, like if you're negotiating for some goal, your best strategy is going to be helping the other person see how they benefit from the same thing you benefit from. Right? King was a master trickster with that. Master trickster with that. So we all study the, the, the movements. We know the civil rights movement is largely presented presented. Because I talked to you last week about Charlie Cobb's uh, that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. We know that the civil rights movement is largely presented as a nonviolent movement. Right? We know that. Um, but we also know that the black power movement is presented, and notice I said presented because the, the Panther Party 10 point platform is not a violent platform. The black party um, move, excuse me, the black power movement narrative is one of violence. Well, those of us who are, who are true students of history and those of us who should be sitting at our elders' feet understand that those hard and fast boundaries didn't exist in real life, that the lines were blurred between them and most people floated between the movements. 
Like they, they were both and, not either or. Right? And so we need to understand that King was able to strategize in such a way that he negotiated with whiteness to say, hey, you'd rather sit at the table and negotiate with me and look at, I can't hold him back too much longer. If you don't believe me that King thought that, reread a letter from the Birmingham jail and see his strategy at work. See, the public school system teaches us that he was a brilliant orator, that he was a minister, right? Southern Baptist minister that could make a crowd move, right? Who marched for freedom and was assassinated. That's what we learn about King. He preached nonviolence. That's what we learn about King. We forget that King was part of a network of people strategizing about things. And King himself used the Black Power Movement when he said things like, negotiate with me because I don't know how much longer people can be patient. That's a veiled threat. Right? He's pushing this interest convergence. Look, it is to your best benefit to come to the table with me and my nonviolence and not deal with these other Negroes with guns. That's a pun on the book that I told you about last week. But so, again, King's ability to push the narrative in such a way, but it, our responsibility of protecting the narrative, right? We can't let them take his legacy by using him to police black radical thought. What would King have been doing now? Because when they killed him, right, he was much more radical than he was in the beginning. So who would he be by now? Or would, who would he have been? Right, if he had lived into his eldership all the way, who would he have been? We push those narratives, to reclaim that King narrative. Now, speaking of King, um, as a freedom fighter, let's go to another freedom fighter. So August 21st, which is tomorrow, if you're listening, Sunday, um, August 21st is the solar eclipse that happens. Um, and there's a lot of hoopla in the media about go get the glasses, don't look at the sun, people traveling to see the total eclipse. You know, it's a lot going on, but for those of us who are spiritual people, there's some things we probably need to be thinking about. And as black spiritual people, then I want to remind you that it was a solar eclipse that drove Nat Turner's rebellion, which also happened August 21st. This is a special solar eclipse for us, y'all. Those of us who know how to bend reality to our will through the use of spirit, listen, it's time to go to work. It's time to work. It's time to uh, light some candles, bang some pots, knock on some graves. It's time to do some work because our people need it. Our people need it. The first thing I thought when um, I got word that Dick Gregory had passed, one of the first things I thought was, oh, that's like him. He knows we need him, right? Right now, we need him. We need his energy. And I see people on Facebook, and of course, the first thing they want to say is rest in peace. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, peaceful journey, bye-bye. But hey, don't rest. 
we need you over there doing some work, right? Um, and so those of us who think in those ways, I just want to point out the significance of tomorrow, right? When Nat Turner um, heard the voice of God telling him to do God's work, right? That, because that's how Nat Turner talked about it. I'm not putting no words in his mouth. He talked about it as, you know, doing God's work. He said he saw the sun blotted out. Like he, he witnessed the eclipse and, and he heard God's voice telling him to do good work. So I'm praying that over every listener that, that hears the sound of my voice right now, that during this eclipse, that you are able to tap into that part of yourself that will do your best work, that will do God's work, that will demand excellence, that will be about excellence, that will be about community empowerment, that'll be about self-empowerment, that'll be about self-development, that'll be about self-love and self-care, that'll be about wellness. Let tomorrow be the day. And you don't have to wait till tomorrow, shit, you can do it today. But don't wait anymore. Be your best self. Be your authentic self. Things you've always wanted to do, stop waiting. Stop waiting. Tomorrow's not promised. That business you want to start, you might not have the funds to go get a, a storefront right now. Go register your name, though. Go get an EIN from the IRS. Start working on your business plan. Those of us who are writers, sit down and look at that blank page every day. Even if you just type one sentence a day, sit for 30 minutes a day. Get the book birthed. Stop waiting. Those of you who are waiting on love to start a family, like if you're like me, we can't afford to keep waiting. Right? There are some bio biological realities that I face. I can't keep waiting on some stuff. Some stuff I just got to go on and make happen. So I pray this eclipse that you just let some stuff go and you stop waiting. And you start living completely authentically in your excellence. Stop hiding from yourself. Like too many of us are hiding from ourselves. We don't want to, we're scared to show the world who we really are. Be you. We all benefit when you are your full self. Trust and believe that. Trust and believe that you were created for a particular reason. A specific reason that nobody else can fulfill. You can't do my work, but guess what? I can't do yours either. That's that part of being authentic. I, we can't, I get irritated because everybody's um, coaching business uses the same colors, uses the same kind of graphics, uses the same kind of language, the same strategies you cut and paste from Pinterest, and you're not feeling it. You got to do what you're supposed, if you do what you're supposed to do, you don't have to chase clients. If you do what you're supposed to do, you will draw that to yourself because then you're fulfilling the purpose that you were put on this earth to do. And when you're walking in your purpose, everything you need will be supplied to you. I promise you that. You know how Oprah says, "What the one thing I know, I do know that. I do know that, that when you are walking in your purpose, everything you need will be provided. Everything. But you got to work, walk in your purpose. You got to be your authentic self. Be all of you. Be all of you. Stop policing it and stop holding back. That's what love is. Love is telling the truth. Speaking the truth. Letting your truth be your own narrative. Live your own story. Live your own story. 
I hope um, that I've said a word to you today that you can use. Um, I am, again, very reflective. I'm going to be probably a little quiet uh, the rest of today and into tomorrow as I try to release some things and try to manifest some things so that I can be my most authentic, excellent self. I encourage you to do the same thing. Send me an email at drtip at tellemtiptoldyou.com and let me know how it's going. Again, the email is drtip at tellemtiptoldyou. I look forward to hearing from you guys. I want you to have a lovely, lovely day. Tell them tip told you. Bye.